0: Hello and welcome to Environmental Justice, Hot Takes in the Heating World. I'm Cora Clemmy, and this episode is about the relationship between city planning and environmental injustices. City planning and environmental injustices are inherently tied together in that poor planning can cause adverse environmental, physical, and mental impacts in minority and underserved communities. The origin and continuation of this poor planning is often traced back to ignorance, greed, racism, and or classism. On the other hand, city officials in land use and design can also use planning as a tool to help mitigate the impacts of environmental injustice through community involvement and collaboration with other city governments such as public health and environmental law. I have Alexis Burnett here with me today. She's a junior at UW-Madison majoring in biology and Spanish with a certificate in environmental studies. So
1: Alexis, do you have any previous knowledge on environmental
0: injustice? I do have a
1: little bit of knowledge regarding environmental injustice. I would say the most um i've heard about it is it impacts different or lower socioeconomic classes and it's regarding things like where they live and um, their types of housing and i would say that's probably my my range of knowledge awesome
0: so environmental injustice can be defined as the disproportionate exposure of black indigenous and people of color which emphasizes BIPOC communities and the poor to pollution and its effects on health and the environment. Throughout this episode, I will often abbreviate using the term BIPOC. This also applies to the unequal environmental protection and quality provided through laws, regulations and governmental programs. Examples of this include city officials and urban planners that many times do not belong to the communities that they are being, that are being adversely affected, targeting communities of color, which are often also low income, to host facilities that have negative environmental impacts. Hundreds of years of oppression and social and institutional power dynamics have made it so that environmental injustice is embedded into our institutions. Environmental injustice is caused by several factors, including intentional neglect, the alleged need for a place for pollutants to go in urban areas, lack of power in their local government, and low land values for BIPOC communities. These factors are caused by the self-interest, prejudice, and media representation that often drives the motives of the people and institutions in power. People have been fighting these injustices for nearly 40 years through the environmental justice movement. Can you think of any examples of environmental
1: injustices? I would say the most prevalent example that I have heard of is the Flint, Michigan water crisis when um, their water was intoxicated and um, unsafe to drink and they had um, a lack of access to clean water and it was really disproportional towards minorities and people of lower socioeconomic classes. Yeah, that's one of the cases that definitely had the most media coverage. But we're going to
0: go back to the beginning of the environmental justice movement and talk about one of the most pivotal events. This was in 1982 in North Carolina when a plan was announced to move soil-contaminated PCBs, which are industrial products or chemicals, from alongside 210 miles of roadsides to a landfill located in Warren County, a county with a majority black and lower economic status population. This triggered a wave of protests, one of which led to the arrest of a U.S. congressman and dozens of other activists. Although the environmental advocates lost the battle, this was the first time this issue reached widespread national attention. This event led to increased research in this field, and some of the data reported included that hazardous waste sites in three southeastern states were disproportionately located near black communities and that three out of five Latino and black Americans live near toxic waste sites. Overall, it was found that residents of contaminated communities were disproportionately likely to be lower socioeconomic status and also have a high probability of being racial minorities. Now, we are currently in the city of Madison, Wisconsin, a place that is often looked at as progressive and liberal in comparison to the rest of the state of Wisconsin. Madison has also been listed as one of the best places to live and raise a family in the nation. With growing recognition for the environmental justice movement, it is important to question for who is this city such a good place to live. As you walk around the city or even around campus do you see any signs of environmental injustices occurring
1: right here in our own backyard um i don't know if this is as accurate as it may just like looking at freshman dorms or um, student living the more affordable dorms are going to be located um in the center of downtown and it's gonna like have a lot of noise pollution and air pollution compared to lakeshore and um housing that is usually more, more affordable and um, further out, but not in the middle of the city. So I would say this is a, a kind of an example of an environmental injustice on campus, as if you want affordable housing, you're going to have to um, face the effects of being in the middle of the city. Yeah, those are really good points. So, more going off of campus, I'll give
0: a brief overview of some examples of environmental injustices in the Madison area to show that these can occur anywhere, even in cities that are seemingly progressive. The first example I will give is on the east side of Madison, which primarily comprises lower income neighborhoods, where it is found to be more likely to have contaminated water in their homes. In addition, children of color were found to be two times as likely to live close to toxic waste facilities than white children on the same side of the city. Contaminants such as PFAs are used at the Dane County Regional Airport and create toxic environments for the neighboring BIPOC communities. PFAs are a group of man-made chemicals that do not break down over time and can accumulate rap- rapidly. Some health effects of these contaminants are increased cholesterol levels, decreased infant birth rates, immune system effects, and even cancer. To give some statistics of the amounts of PFA contamination in the surrounding areas of the Dane County Regional Airport, there was more than 60. 68,000 parts per trillion in water, while the Environmental Protection Agency advises not to consume more than 70 parts per trillion of PFAs, and the Wisconsin Department of Health only advises 20 parts per trillion. Another example of environmental injustice in the Madison area is the Oscar Mayer Special Area Plan, which is a plan for low-income, high-density housing to be located on the retired factory plant that underwent decades of toxic waste contamination that include the highly toxic chemical trichloroethylene, or TCE. As stated earlier, many of these decisions made by planners and local government officials are rooted in the fact that they are often not representative of the communities that are the most adversely affected. Because of this disconnect, the people with the most influence often act in ways of self-interest that reinforce the racial racial and economic disparities already in place. Now let's shift over to the topic of city planning and how it can be used to mitigate the effects of environmental justice. Do you have any previous knowledge about the city planning field?
1: I don't really have any knowledge regarding the city planning field.
0: Got it. So I will just give a little bit of a background. So city planning is defined as the planning and control of the construction, growth, and development of a town or other urban areas. One big factor of the city planning field is sociospatial relations, which addresses how built infrastructure and society interact. The concept of socio-spatial relations assumes that social space operates as both a product and producer of changes in the metro- metropolitan environment. City Planning ties together many different fields, such as architecture, engineering, public safety, and waste management, all while being tightly knit with politics and social relations with different demographics found within the typical modern city. Over the past century, City Planning has made a shift from the development of open land to the redevelopment of the older and more worn parts of the city in order to create more modern and functional spaces and make things more aesthetic for its users. Within this field of city planning, something that is often talked about is redlining and zoning. Do you know about the history of these terms?
1: Um, I have a little knowledge with them. I um, I know that government officials use like gerrymandering and zoning to um, kind of segregate different communities and um, it impacts like voting for city like officials and um, taxes and all that kind of like stuff based off where you live, but that's all I know about it.
0: Yeah, those are good points. So authors of American Apartheid, Massey and Denton use the terms use the term American Apartheid to describe the segregation of black Americans in urban America. They argue against a set of explanations such as culture, racism, economics, and welfare that try to explain the reason for the extent of segregation. Two main causes of this hypersegregation we see in major US cities are zoning policies and redlining. Zoning policies decipher what land land is used for and what purposes it serves for communities and neighborhoods. The laws regarding these zones control the development that occurs on and within that area. The main goals of these laws and policies are to ensure that overall well-being of the community and its environment while also being pleasing to the eye. The way that this topic has become racialized and has failed to serve minority and poor communities is that it tends to focus only on benefiting white affluent communities while harming, greatly displacing, and segregating minority communities. Going off of this, the process of redlining began in the 1930s when the Roosevelt administration created the Home Owners Loan Corporation, um, the HOLC, which provided mortgages to homeowners who they believed would not default on their loans. To assess the risks of the loans, the HOLC made color-coded maps of metropolitan areas based on land use and current residents. Areas with primarily black residents were, were regularly declined loans. This process still occurs today when local governments deny communities of color goods and services that are necessary for a healthy environment, but give them to neighborhoods that are white and affluent instead. This creates heavily segregated areas because black populations are purposely kept from moving into different areas because of these loan policies. Now that we have set a foundation for environmental injustices and city planning, how do you think the two could be related?
1: Um, I would assume that the two are related um, in regards to using city planning to disproportionately set uh, minority communities or um, underserved communities in areas that um, are high in environmental injustices. Yeah. So,
0: there is a natural connection between city planning and the overall well-being and health of the public. This can be dated back to the sanitary movement when public safety and health were the main objective for city planners. This movement became popular and necessary as the spread of infectious and viral disease became one of the leading causes of death in the Western world. The movement became full swing following the industrial era in areas of great urban growth in an effort to create cleaner living and working quarters. An example of a goal set during this movement was disease control through cleaning up and improving the common environment, which was put out by the Committee for the Study of Future of Public Health. After advances to meeting this goal were met, the main objective for urban planners shifted to creating aesthetically pleasing landscapes in areas that would generate revenue, often while ignoring the needs of the residents of the metropolitan area who were most often minorities or below the poverty line. Another thing to mention is that when the sanitary movement was in full swing, the main cause of death in the Western world was infectious diseases. To put this into perspective, in London in the 19th century, more than half of the working class died before their fifth birthday due to infectious diseases spread by inadequate working working and living conditions. Nowadays, the main causes of death are chronic diseases, which can help explain this inherent shift in the main goals of the urban planning field. Although viral infections are no longer the leading cause of death in the United States, chronic illnesses can also be related to city planning and are very closely connected. Studies have shown that living in underprivileged and underserved communities, the people living there have a higher risk of chronic illnesses that result in high rates of mental illnesses and mortality as well. This is not only due to environmental injustices where local governments and city officials locate toxic waste sites near minority and poor communities, as mentioned before, but it also has to do with the intricate ways in which planning and zoning produce certain neighborhood environments solely based on the demographic within the area. Can you think of any ways in which a certain environment may have an effect on your susceptibility to chronic illnesses that do not have to do with direct contact to pollutants? Um,
1: One possibility could be um as you said before with uh, the city planning and zoning, how they produce different environments. If um, a a zoning project produced a neighborhood that was not really surrounded with good food options or good um, healthy alternatives to different things like fast food and um, just cheaper options, then that could end up leading to a chronic illness of um, heart failure or um, cardiac issues. Regarding that or obesity, which are all um, very high, high leaders in um, mortality.
0: Yeah, those are really good points and almost exactly what I was going to say next. So poorly planned neighborhoods often have attributes such as crime and the absence of social cohesion, both of which lead to added stress to the population. This is persistent amongst communities of color and the poor because of the redlining and zoning that keeps them living under completely different conditions in comparison to white and affluent communities within the same city these poor communities are underserved and get less resources from their local governments due to structural and overt racism as well as implicit bias their neighborhoods lack facilities that encourage healthy lifestyles and behaviors such as an adequate amount of grocery stores and outdoor parks instead of places that are vital to men Instead of places that are vital to mental and physical well-being for these communities, there are ample amounts of fast food restaurants, liquor stores, etc. It is undoubtedly evident that these communities are lacking fair and just city planning officials that will help to mitigate their exposure to these added stressors along with the already apparent close approximations to toxic waste and pollution as discussed earlier with the environmental justice movement. After discussing how urban planning and environmental injustices are connected, can you think of any ways that city planning can be used as a tool in the environmental justice movement to better the conditions of minorities and poor communities?
1: Um, yeah, it could be a goal of government officials to to have the distribution of things in the neighborhood to be more equal or um, distributed among all different types of neighborhoods instead of just uh, minority communities and um more of a affordable living type situations. and that would help operate more parks or more grocery stores or um, different things just within each neighborhood instead of all the things in one neighborhood. So, diving
0: into solutions to environmental injustices through city planning, there are many progressive urban planners that see the often classist and racist history of their field. One way that progressive city planners have tried to improve certain areas throughout the city is through the urban renewal mo- movement. This movement aims to initiate programs of land redevelopment typically put in place to add more green space and open area to city centers. This movement also aims to get rid of decaying buildings and to replace them with areas that could be profitable, and are more aesthetically pleasing. While the broad aim of this movement is to help any community, regardless of race or economic status, this movement has greatly been tied to the gentrification of communities and the slum clearance, which is replaced by housing and facilities aimed at upper and middle class demographics. In order to mitigate this and to cut the ties between urban renewal and the urban renewal movement and gentrification, the new wave of progressive urban planners believe it is imperative that they implement urban renewal programs that do not disproportionately benefit the wealthy and harm the poor. Do you think that there are some ways that urban renewal can actively shift to benefit the poor and working classes that it has historically displaced?
1: Um, I think there are some ways. I agree with you that a lot of the um, urban renewal programs have mainly focused on gentrification, and it only really, only really helps the wealthy people as it makes the neighborhoods more expensive to live. But maybe ways to Um, avoid that and try to help more of the more of the underclass instead of the upper class would be to incorporate city programs like um, different community centers and stuff that aren't really high cost uh, slash could be free of cost um, just to kind of give more of a sense of community and allow different outlets for people of that community to do more things
0: yeah perfect So one way to make this happen is to get public health officials and the people involved in environmental law to collaborate with the city planners. With these different perspectives coming together to collaborate with the city planners, more data will be offered so that the planners can reach the demographics that are in the greatest amount of need. Through the public health sectors, planners would be able to see which neighborhoods have the highest rates of chronic disease and can base their planning off of that or at least take that into consideration. They can also see how the location of certain environmental hazards create health concerns for those neighborhoods and create plans to mitigate the negative impacts that they have seen on these primarily poor and or minority communities. Another way to mitigate the effects of environmental injustices through city planning is to give more power to the community members and allow them to have input on the decisions that will ultimately affect their livelihood and well-being. Community-based participatory research is an example of allowing community members to collaborate with officials in a way that allows their voices to be heard and empowered. This can be initiated within the communities through grassroots movements and protesting inadequacies in public health services and detrimental facilities being located near their living and working quarters. Once these movements are initiated, it is necessary for the city officials and local governments to listen to the public, take action to take the right measures to protect and provide for their underserved communities. By listening to the community's needs and taking first-hand accounts of their experiences, planners can take action by implementing limits on the amount of facilities that directly cause physical and mental harm to their communities. Examples of this could include bus stations, factories, and toxic waste facilities that all produce both noise pollution and toxic fumes. City planning and environmental injustices are inherently tied together in that poor and ignorant planning can cause adverse environmental, physical, and mental impacts on minority and underserved community. On the other hand, city planning can also be used as a tool to help mitigate the impacts of environmental injustice, the community involvement, and collaboration with the other city governments such as public health and environmental law. That is all for today, and thank you for listening to Environmental Justice Hot Takes in the Heating World.